Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, bring us to the bosom of your word and feed us on your truth that we may have the strength you have promised your children. Amen. Morning. First reading this morning is from the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 66, verses 10 to 14. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious bosom. For thus says the Lord, I will extend prosperity to her like a river, and the wealth of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and be carried on her arm, and bounced on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bodies shall flourish like the grass, And it shall be known that the power of the Lord is with his servants, and his indignation is against his enemies. Second reading is of the Old Testament, responsive, Psalm 66. Make a joyful noise to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Because of your great power, your enemies cringe before you. All the earth worships you. They sing praises to you. Sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds among mortals. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. They he replaced in them. Who rules by his might forever? Whose eyes keep watch on the nations? Let the rebellious not exalt themselves. Bless, O God, our people. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept us among the living has not let our feet slip. Third reading is from the New Testament. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 16. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For you reap whatever you sow. If you sow to your own flesh, you will reap corruption from the flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right. For we will reap at harvest time. If we do not give up, so then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. See what large letters I make when I am writing in my own hand. It is those you want to make a good showing in the flesh who try to compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Even the circumcised do not themselves obey the law, but they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your flesh. 
May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the word has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. As for those who will follow this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Our final reading is the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, verses 11, 1 to 11, and 16 to 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on that person, but if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. And whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. Indeed, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. It's word to us. Friends in Christ. What I say to you this morning is proclaimed in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As I was thinking about the sermon title, it dawned on me I left out something. Two more dots. As it was in the beginning. Dot, dot, dot. Okay? It'll become apparent why that's important in a minute. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Right? As it was in the beginning, isn't, doesn't get followed by a period ever in the church. 
our experience is always, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. There was a time that we sang those words in worship every week. They were the closing lines of what we used to call the Gloria Patri, back when we all remembered our Latin from high school, right? The Gloria Patri, glory to the Father. And every week after the responsive reading, for which we used to stand, or at least in many churches we did. Do we used to, did we used to, does anybody remember standing for the responsive psalm here at St. John's? Was that a thing here? I suspect it probably was, but a while ago, we, we've, we've relaxed, and one of the things we've done is we've sat down for the responsive reading. But after the responsive reading, we would then say, sing, Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. Uh, See, I haven't sung it for so long, I forget how the tune goes. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Glory Patri, as its name hints at, is an ancient expression of the faith of the church. And it is one of a, a number of, of a collection of worship music that has been part of the expression of the church's faith for centuries. That's why we still refer to it by a Latin name. And I grew up singing it every week. And then I sung, I sang various versions of it in various churches throughout the years. You'd go to a new church, you'd be visiting in the summertime, or uh, as a student I'd be visiting a new church, and invariably they'd sing the Gloria Patri to a different tune, which is also why it's really hard to remember how the tune goes anymore, because we've sung it so many different ways. But in all of those various churches, regardless of what the tune was, we would sing those words. Now, the last time I remember singing them was when I was the minister in a congregation in New Brunswick, almost 15 years ago now. By the time I got to my congregation just before here, they had dropped them from the common cadence of worship. And yet, as is so often the case, You know, there are those things that we do all of the time, even maybe on a weekly basis, whose meaning slips from our mind, and we simply lose sight of why we do it and what it means. And I was reminded of those words from the Gloria Patri this week, as I was thinking about that daring acclamation that Paul makes in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15. And Kenny read it for us this morning. Paul writes, May may I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything But a new creation is everything. 
new creation is everything. As we mentioned as, 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 as off the top there when we were had our little time with the children. The church that Paul is writing to this morning, the church in Galatia, they're a difficult church. And Paul, well, maybe the polite thing to say would be, Paul is vexed. Plus, I don't get to use the word vexed that often, so right? Paul is vexed with this church. It seems that Paul's heard what's going on in this Christian community in Galatia, how they're being torn apart by division and rancor, and it is a result of that that uh, hearing of what's going on there that Paul writes this letter. And as the letter to the Galatians open, if you flip your Bible back to, to chapter 1 and the, the very beginning, there's none of that traditional greeting that Paul gives to a church when he writes them a letter. Not in this letter. Nuh-uh. There's no greeting of the saints. There's no expression of how Paul maybe longs to visit them. There's no asking about the people that Paul remembers well from that congregation and his time when, they, when he traveled through their town. No. In Galatians, Paul is straight to the point. He launches straight into his reason for, the, for writing to them. In verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in grace in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Boy, there's not much more stronger way for an apostle to start a letter to the church than that. I am astonished at what you are doing. And then as the letter goes on, we learn that the Galatian church is a community of factions, each claiming that they are better than the others for some reason or another. The big controversy seems to be whether one must be of the Jewish faith before one can claim the benefits of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? We hear that in in those verses that we read from Paul. It doesn't matter whether I am of the circumcised, the circumcised, sorry, I'm of the circumcision or of the uncircumcision. Paul's saying, those practices of the Jewish faith, not so important here. What is important is that I am of the cross of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it would seem that there are even some in this community of faith who teach to the church claiming to have received other letters from Paul or that they are basing their their teaching upon Pauline teaching. Paul wants them to make sure that they know erroneously. That's the reason, scholars believe, that Paul writes that very strange little sentence in the middle of the reading. Did you hear it this morning? Paul says these words. See what large letters I make when I am writing in my own hand. In other words, he's saying, this, I'm writing this 
letter to you. How can you tell? Because these are my big letters to you. You know, everybody has their little things that they do, right? Some people, when you cross a T at the end, you don't lift the pen. At the end of a word, you don't lift the pen. So the T comes down straight, and then you kind of do that to make your T, right? Or maybe you dot your I's with a little heart. Something like that that only you do or that sets your handwriting apart from other people. Paul's saying, see these big letters? This is how you know this is written by my own hand. It hasn't been written by someone who's transcribed it for me, and it hasn't been written by anyone in your church. Paul is attempting to prove that this letter has an authority to it of being written by an apostle that perhaps some other writings did not have. In the group of readings that we've heard this weekend, both from Galatians, but also touching from that touching reading that we hear in Isaiah chapter 66, with its idea of a mothering God, a God who nurses her people from her, con- from her consoling breast. It's with those coming together that I began to wonder for a minute about those words that I used to say every week, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. It's easy to think that that simply speaks about eternity. Right? Our God who was and is and is to come. But this this week, it struck me that this is also really an articulation of the doctrine of justification, as we understand it. How we are brought into line with the nature and the will of God. Uh, we're often cautioned as preachers not to use the big three, you know, the big three-dollar words of the of the church. Words like justification and sanctification. Justification is a nice, easy one for us to remember in the computer age, right? Because if any of you have worked on a word processor on a computer, right, at some point you get to choose how you want to set your margins, and you can set your margins so that. It, it aligns everything to the right hand, uh, to the left hand. I'll, 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 use, I'll use your left, my right. To the left hand margin. Or you can align every, all of your text so that it lines up on the right hand margin. Or you can click that one where it aligns on both margins. And we say the text is justified. It is brought into line with both of the margins of the page. And likewise, then, for us, the idea of justification is that we have brought our lives into line with God through Jesus Christ. It is not so much that as it was in the beginning has eluded has eluded my understanding for all these years, but really it's the next phrase 
the is now that has confounded me. Indeed, one might argue the in is now is confounding to many when we think about our faith and how we are justified by God. How is it that we who live in this liminal moment, stuck between the ascension of Jesus of history and awaiting for the return of the Christ of faith, how is it that we are justified, that we live lives in line with God, that we fit into the great history of God's redeeming love? How is it that us, we, who from day to day aren't very saintly, perhaps. How is it that we are part of that, as it was in the beginning, is now and forever shall be? Hmm. I thought about that all week long. It is because we know that it's all indivisible. But how? How is it that it all sticks together? And the key to opening the puzzle rests in the reading from Isaiah 66. It is that we believe in a sovereign God who stands apart from the created order because of his perfection and wisdom and love and because we have fallen and we are sinful. And yet, while there is that separation, God is is not dispassionate. God just doesn't stand back and go, well, let them sort it out. God does not leave us alone in our sin, but God continues to look on the creation with compassion and longs to rescue it. Indeed, unlike us, God sees the world as it was created. God sees the as it was in the beginning. The shadows of that perfection that was the original creation and the goodness that was inherent in God's creating is still visible to God. And as a result, God cannot leave us alone. God cannot simply walk away from the creation that God cherishes so much. Many years ago, I was leading our, uh, the Thinking Day worship service in a congregation for our scouting groups. And one of the young beavers I can't remember what it was. It must have been in the children's story, and I must have asked a question, something like, what what happens when you do something bad? I suspect that probably was it. And one of our young beavers mentioned that when he was bad, his mother would make him go and sit on the naughty chair. I wasn't familiar with the naughty chair. I had to ask him a couple of times before it clicked in my head. His mother would make him go and sit in the naughty chair. But what we hear in Isaiah chapter 66 is this, that our mothering God cannot leave us to sit on the naughty chair forever. 
We are not the object of God's perfect judgment. For if we were, who could ever be saved? But we are the recipients of God's perfect love, which tempers God's justice with mercy. Such is the nature of God. That the love of God is most perfectly revealed to us in God's act of sending Jesus Christ into the world to be for us the redemption of the world. In Christ's death and resurrection taken upon himself, he takes upon himself, pardon me, the sins of the world, putting them to death on the cross, defeating them and their power through his resurrection from the dead, and we are justified. That Christ puts to death sin and defeats their power in his resurrection, and in that act we are restored to the goodness that God first saw in the garden. We become the full embodiment of the shadows of goodness seen only by God. In Jesus, we are made a new creation, reclaiming the goodness of the garden as our own, reflecting the perfection of the God who has made us. That was Paul's joyful acclamation in Galatians chapter 6. That long before we ever imagined the redeeming love of God, God was already working out our salvation. And it was in the beginning, and it is now. We who believe are experiencing God's reconciling love right now. What that meant for the early church in Galatia is that there is nothing that they could do that would earn God's salvation. We are not saved because we are circumcised, Paul is saying. We are not saved because we adhere to the strict Jewish rules around food or whatever it is that you want to put at the end of that line, we are not saved by, except for this. We are saved Because of God's love for us. Because that is God's nature. As Paul says elsewhere in his writings to the church in Rome, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it's the gift from God. Having received this gift then, we are enabled and empowered to bear the burdens of others. To Our hearts are moved to look upon the sorrow and the sadness of others and to reach out with, to them in the love of God and to share with them that mercy and love and forgiveness. We, the church, are called to be church, not because we're working out our salvation. Not because anything we do in this place means that we are saved and nobody else is. Somebody once said, the church is not the home for saints, but it is the hospital for sinners. All of us are welcome. All of us come here because each in our own way is looking to be healed and restored to experience the love of God. And here we do it. And here we receive that promise. The promise is simply this. 
God's love for us is not some future event that we're going to learn, that we're going to earn, but it's part of God's very nature that we have experienced in the past when we heard those first stories about the love of God. Whether it was back when you were on the cradle roll of the congregation 85 years ago, whether it was in youth group as a teen or as a young adult when you married into a congregation or as, as you tune in to this live stream this morning sitting in front of a computer. It's not in those moments, but it is in the very nature of God that forgiveness comes. And we fall in line. We become justified because of God's love. As we go forth from this place this day, it is ours to go forth as people of joy. We talk about that all the time in the church. Most people go, I don't know why they talk about joy. They're all so dour. But not you. That's other congregations. There's always smiles at St. John's. But the reality is, that we go forth and we go in joy because we have experienced the love of God and we know that we have been saved. We know that God's goodness is all around us just as it was in the beginning. We know that God's goodness surrounds us now. And we know that God's goodness goes into the future. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.